Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Turn in your Bibles to that passage. And as I get ready up here, I want to do a few housekeeping things. Um, First off, this song, The Lord is My Salvation... That's a good song. Man, I like those words. We need to sing this again. Did Gabrielle, you're right there. We need to sing this one again and learn it. We do. And Brian, I was stumbling just as much. I'm I'm like you. Make a joyful noise. That's what I do. Joyful noise. Um, Thank you for your service in leading us when Bob's not here and singing. Rodney, your testimony about your neighbor. Um refugees, it brought up this memory that I haven't had in probably 15 years, but when I was in college and grad school, I had a fellow student who was Vietnamese, and I got to know him some through this one course we were in. He was also a believer, and so we had that in common, but um, he ended up sharing with me once over lunch that he had fled Vietnam, and if you, I was in college in the 80s, after the Vietnam War ended from 73 or 74 on, there, was, there were boat people in the news fleeing Vietnam. Went on for a decade. Well, he was a boat person, and he told me about how he had been arrested and spent like 18 months in a, re, in a re-education camp. And then after that, some time passed, and he had the opportunity to try to flee. He had actually been trying to flee and be a boat person to get out of the country when he got caught and went to the re-education camp. But he had another chance several years later, and he made it out. And he had harrowing experiences on the boat, you know, trying to, to, to get to wherever they got picked up finally. But here he was in America, and it was just such a compelling story of getting a second chance in life, of having a new life. He, he loved America. Because he was safe and he could pursue an education. But he also loved Jesus and that was what was cool about it. I think he had become a believer after coming to America. And, uh, and I, I remember, I'm not sure if he told me this or I thought about it later, but I think he told me this, that as much as it was so wonderful to have a second chance in life physically, uh, once he met Christ... He had a second chance for real life. So anyway, that went through my head. And I just think you need to reach out to that neighbor. You need to encourage them. You may have the opportunity to share Christ with them. They may be Christians already, in which case they may be a blessing to you. So thanks for sharing your testimony. Another house cleaning type thing. Uh, um, Chuck, I think it was in Sunday school. So not everybody here heard it, but you talked about how... um, some churches have a really hard time having someone fill in when the pastor's away. And our church is blessed that we have men who are willing to do that. Um, and I was thinking of Gerald yesterday leading us in the men's breakfast. And it was a good devotional time that Gerald led us through. First time he's ever, ever done that. Um, so the message there is that the grace of God working in you can cause you to be a blessing to other people. And that's going to relate to what I'm going to talk about today. So we're obviously going through um, 2 Corinthians. I think everybody here 
has been here for several weeks um, through through this. Uh, Bob has had a, a, has stated a couple of big themes that are present in the first few chapters. Uh, I skipped over this one, but a big one is the idea of embracing affliction. Uh, we have a lot of that in chapter one, um, and 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 the idea of encouraging other people. Our Bibles say comfort, but the Greek word is actually better translated as encourage. And the idea is encouraging others as we have learned things and been encouraged by God from the afflictions we've been in, encourage others in their affliction. And embracing affliction not as, as something to run away from, but something to be victorious through is a theme. Bob has talked about the old covenant as physical of the flesh, while the new covenant is spiritual of the spirit. And I say Bob has talked about that. These are a couple of his charts he's used. It's obviously he's teaching, Bob has been teaching what Paul has talked about in the first few chapters of uh, 2 Corinthians. The Old Covenant is also temporal, temporary. The New Covenant is eternal. And we see that in how the New Covenant has replaced the Old Covenant and is about eternal life. Jesus said at first verse, John 17, 3, that um, eternal life is to know you, the Father, and to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Um, so we're in 2 Corinthians 6 where Chuck was just reading. The immediate context I want to go through real quick. If you turn back in your Bible a page to chapter 5, what Bob uh, had been teaching on last week, I just want to read a few, hit a, a few key phrases that build up to this idea of being an ambassador for Christ. In verse 11, I'm in 2 Corinthians 5, we have the phrase, Paul says, We persuade men, knowing the terror of the Lord, or knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Verse 14, The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So the love of Christ controls us. And then continuing, He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we persuade men. The love of Christ controls us. We live for the one who died for us. Verse 17, new creation in Christ. Verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, God was in Christ. Um, let's see, where am I? Yeah, in 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And then we get to verse 20 where Paul says that, he, that we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so we've had a build-up at the end of chapter 5 with all of these words and phrases pointing to how God has given a ministry to people. Here it's being spoken through Paul to pass on to others the good news that we can be reconciled to God through Christ. And there's an aspect not only of conveying that truth, which we often call sharing the good news, but also pleading with people, urging people, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Then we get to verse 21. Bob had called it the power of our calling, God is pleading through, well, that, that goes, the power of our calling from Bob's message last week goes with the verse 20 
Um, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But then the power of our message in verse 21, where it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We think of this sometimes as Christ took our sin and gives us his righteousness. And that's true, but it's actually deeper when you look at the actual meaning, the actual words. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Christ became our sin, the end of that verse, that we might become the righteousness of God. You have in there the idea of a change of identity of who you are. People have called this the great exchange. Christ becomes our sin. We become his righteousness. Now, on the Christ side, he became our sin, endured the wrath of God, and somehow in the wonderment of being God, his identity doesn't change. He remains Christ, rises from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. But our identity changes. We have been become the righteousness of God. It really ties back strongly to verse 17 in chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So that's the context when we get to chapter 6, verse 1. And in that verse, he says, We then, so then is kind of a connecting word to all of what's come before. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, I want to talk about the word grace, and probably about half my time is going to be spent on this. Um, the, in, the, in the Greek, the word is charis, and it means, um, it means grace, it means favor, uh, it means loving kindness, um, It's sometimes translated as thankfulness in the context of being thankful for something someone does for you that you don't deserve. There's another Greek word for thankfulness that's used in many places, but when it's that context of you just didn't deserve it and someone did something nice to you, this this same charis is sometimes used there. Um, So this is a definition that I have on the screen that's more of a secular definition, kindness bestowed on one who does not deserve it say secular because that definition would apply when you show grace to someone else. It also applies when God shows grace to us. Now, a more uh, uh, common one specifically about God that you've probably heard, this has been, I've heard it from a number of preachers, I don't know who it originates with, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's, a, it's an acrostic where the first letter of each word spells out grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And then um, one other one that I really like that was used in CEF and their material for Good News Club, um, we actually used this last quarter over at the school, is God's unmerited favor. Now, that's a short, simple way of saying the same thing as in God's riches at Christ's expense. The favor is the riches, and the fact that someone else paid for it, Christ, that, makes what, that goes with unmerited. We don't deserve in any fashion the favor that God shows for us when he pours out his grace upon us. Now, at this point, we tend to think, I, I want to go in two directions here. The first is that we tend to think when we think of grace, most of us think of two things primarily. The first things that usually come to our mind. Number one is salvation, and number two 
is the inheritance we have as children of God. Those two kind of go together. They're both things that we in no way deserve. Um, because we're sinners, we deserve judgment. We, we deserve wrath. We don't deserve the forgiveness and then what and salvation from punishment. And we also don't deserve the benefit that comes after we're saved. When we become adopted as children of God, we now are recipients of the inheritance that He's got reserved for us. There's a number of New Testament verses about that. And the whole idea is that when we reach eternity with Him in heaven, there's a whole lot more He intends to give. So I'm going to show you a a passage, two passages actually, that are on this idea of grace related to salvation and what comes after that. Uh, The one you're very familiar with, I'm sure, is Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the end of verse 5. By grace you have been saved. That's clearly about salvation. But then as it continues in verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, the word inheritance is not used here, but that's what this is about. None of us have actually sat in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Figuratively, you could say this is positionally where I am having been saved. But this is not written in a positional type manner. This is written in a literal manner that he's, he's raised us up. This you could take as raised us to new life, as in... Romans 6, verse 14, talking about how we're raised uh, to walk in newness of life. Um, But it says we're going to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come. That's not talking about now. I have become a believer in Christ. I have been adopted into His family. His Holy Spirit comes and dwells in me. I'm still finishing out my life in this age. This ages to come is future. And I believe that's referring to our eternity in heaven with Christ. And where he's going to show exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. There is a whole lot more to come, which in other parts of the Bible is referred to as the inheritance that God has for his children. So um, so both are covered in that passage. But then this goes on to the verse that you, many of you have memorized at some point in the past. You know this verse. Verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The it here is the salvation. You have gotten the salvation through the means of faith, and that stems from God's grace. In His grace, He's made it available. And you can actually make a case from other verses. I wouldn't make it from this verse. But by His grace, He enables us to even have faith. So, by grace you've been saved through faith, that of your, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not something you've earned, not something you can pay for, not something you on your own can justify. You're totally dependent on the goodness of God, His unmerited favor, to give you that salvation. Now, it says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We need to not stop there. We often stop there when we're quoting Ephesians 2. Verse 10 is a wonderful verse that goes hand in glove with it. It's like bookcases. You've got the one side and then the other. 
We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Works is in both verses. The salvation part has nothing to do with your works. It's totally dependent on God's work. But having been saved, we now have, we have a change of identity. We've been saved by the work of God. But now we have a purpose. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This beforehand certainly means before you get to the moment where you can do the good works. It also means, I think, before you were even saved. God had this purpose for you, and I think you could tie it to other verses, including in Ephesians chapter 1, just one page back in your Bible, that it means even before you ever lived on this earth, God had prepared good works for you to walk in Once your identity is changed, you become a new creation in Christ. Old things passed away, new things have come. A change of identity, and now you have a purpose. The good works that he's prepared beforehand for you. These good works, for me, I immediately go to Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the reality for us is this plays out in basically three categories. Number one is through my day, I get caught up with so much busyness, focused on what I need to do, or maybe focused on myself if I'm just blunt about it, and I see an opportunity where I could, I don't know, there's an opportunity there where I could do a good work and God's glory be be shown, and I don't even see it, so I miss it totally. There's another category where you see the opportunity, you recognize it, But for whatever reason, it could be selfishness. It could actually be a more pure motive um, where you can't stop and help with that thing. Or you think you're unable to, whether you're rightly unable to or not. And so you go on by. So you saw the opportunity, but you don't do anything. You don't help. Uh, When I say those words, I immediately think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've got a priest and a Levite who walk on by. And depending... On how you take that, I've had a lot, I've heard a lot of messages that sort of condemn the priest and the Levite. But I've also heard our pastor, Bob, make a compelling case about how the priest and the Levite were faithfully doing what had been revealed to them by God to do based on the law and what they were in the process of doing at the time. And you could go either way with that depending on your circumstance. But the category is you see the opportunity and you don't help. Sometimes you couldn't help. Sometimes you should have helped, but that's a category. Then the third category is you see the opportunity to help, and by the grace of God working in you, you stop and help, whatever that good work is. And by the way, good work, I keep saying stop and help, and we think of the Good Samaritan, so we naturally think of someone broken down on the highway as an example. There are many ways to do good works. You can take the initiative and the conversation with someone that you don't often talk to, And in the course of it, be an encourager to them. That's a good work. There's all kinds of ways to be fulfilling verse 10. So anyway, the grace of God in regard to salvation and the grace of God in regard to this inheritance that is to come. But there's another... uh, Oh, I want to show you another verse before I go to that. I don't have the verses up here, but uh, I'm going to read to you from Acts 11. This is still on the subject of the grace operating in salvation. 
Acts 11, starting in 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. By the way, that word Hellenists means Greeks. It doesn't say, as in another part of Acts, Hellenistic Jews, which meant Jews from Greek places, Greek-speaking Jews who had grown up outside of Israel. It doesn't mean that. It means Greeks themselves, not Jews. So this would be Gentiles. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And if you remember your geography, seeing in a map of the Middle East, Antioch is a good ways north along the Mediterranean Sea. It's up right in the top corner of the Mediterranean Sea before it turns and goes across to the east. So it's right in that underbelly of modern-day Turkey. That's a good ways in those days when they traveled on foot and by ship, where by ship they had to stay within sight of the land. They didn't go, you know, they couldn't navigate well to just go cutting across it. Um, so they hear that these Jews who have left Jerusalem because of persecution have ended up in Antioch. They've, let, they've told people about Christ, and supposedly these folks have believed. A bunch of Gentiles. Mixed in, I'm sure, with some Jews. Verse 22. No, verse 20, 23. And when... Wait, wait, wait. 22. Acts eleven twenty two. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Go check it out for us. Find out what's going on. When he came and verse twenty three, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart. They should continue with the Lord. So he comes and he sees the grace of God. Um, here I have it in the New American Standard on the screen. There's this is the way I had learned it years ago. There's a few words here that I just cherish, so I'm showing you that in addition to what I just read you from the New King James. Um, he arrives and he sees the grace of God. Well, what did he actually see? He sees a bunch of people professing faith in Christ and being followers of Christ. They're trying to live for Jesus. They've turned away from the foreign gods that they had held to as Greeks. Scripture records that as he witnessed the grace of God or he saw the grace of God. So the grace of God has been manifested through the salvation and the change of these people's lives. But here's a part that I just love. What did he do? Barnabas began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Why is that important to remain true to the Lord? Well, lots of people can profess faith in Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean you're really a believer. I'll give you a few examples. Children can profess faith in Christ because they want to please their parents. A spouse, say you're older, you could profess faith in Christ to please your, your spouse who is a Christian, wants you to become one. So there you're trying to please somebody else. God sees the heart. He knows whether there's genuine faith there. Um. A couple other motivations. People sometimes are in a church and they have the music going, worshipful, and a powerful message from the preacher. And they can have emotional responses. And they can feel like, I need to do this. And they can walk an aisle and get baptized, if you put it in the context of a typical Baptist church. 
But then just there's no change. It's an emotional thing that rises and then fades. And on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday the following week, they realize they don't really want to live that way. And they're back to the way they were. Very much fitting in with one of the types of soil in Jesus' parable of the four soils, how people respond to hearing the the gospel. Um, Another one is that people can hear the news of of salvation, the gospel, but not actually understand it properly. And so they can think, oh, this is easy. I will say those words. I want that fire insurance so that I'll go to heaven. But then they live the way they want to live, continuing. So most of us have probably known people that fall into those categories. For us, looking at them, we don't know whether that was genuine and they became believers or not. Time will tell which is why we need to remain true to the Lord. Those who are truly changed and are new creatures in Christ, we should see change. If we don't see change, it's good reason to wonder. But still, we're not God. We're not the one in the seat of judgment. God is. And so God knows their hearts. People can say words and trick you and me, but they can't trick God. And here's the key thing. The new birth... The spiritual birth is a birth. You, the person being born, don't make it happen. In John 1.12, we're told that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God, even to those who, receive, even to those who believe in his name. We often leave out verse 13, which goes on to say, who are born not of, the, not of blood, meaning you don't inherit it, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning you can't work my way into getting it, nor of the will of man, which I think means no one else can pronounce it for you. And it ends with two very important words, but of God. If you take the beginning of 13, who were born, skip all the phrases and go to the end. It's who were born of God. God is the one who quickens us from the dead spiritually and gives us life. He does it when he sees that genuine faith in a person's heart. Barnabas sees the grace of God that these people are professing faith in Christ. They appear to be real believers. And he goes around encouraging them with all... Encouraging them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. You know, people sometimes talk about what do you want written on your tombstone. This would be a great phrase for a believer to have on a tombstone. He encouraged believers to remain with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. By the way, this resolute heart, I go, you can take it two ways. I don't know. Does it mean that Barnabas with resolute heart was telling them, be true to the Lord? Or does it mean Barnabas is encouraging them, saying, with resolute heart, remain true to the Lord? You could go either way with that. I think maybe it applies both ways. Um, But that's such a great phrase. He's encouraging and exhorting them to remain true to the Lord. Anyway, got off a little on a tangent there. Um, So I, I I now want to talk about grace in a third way that we don't think of as often. Uh, a man named Bill Gothard gave this definition. God's grace gives us the desire and the power to do his will. Now, I, w- I want to say a thing or two here. 
uh, Bill Gothard had this Institute for Basic Life Principles. And by the way, if you, recognize the, if you don't recognize the name, don't worry about it. If you do recognize the name, most people that have heard of Bill Gothard and familiar with him have strong opinions, either pro or con. They fall into both categories. That's not my point, and I'm not getting into that issue. I personally think that Bill Gothard loves the Lord, and he's given his life trying to help other people love the Lord. But he's also made some mistakes, as have every one of us. But that's not my point. In the 1980s, I had never heard of the man, and some people from my church were going to this several-day seminar called the Institute for Basic Life Principles, and I went. And um, the, the main thing, there were two things that stood out to me in that. One was scripture memory because he talked a lot about the importance of scripture memory. The second thing that stood out to me was that he had what he called definitions of a number of things. And le- this was before his uh, ministry was producing things for homeschoolers, I think. It was near the beginning of that. These definitions later went into a bunch of homeschool material. But um, there were two that I remember that stood out to me. The first one's going to be a tangent, but I just got to tell you because it it just lit me up when I heard it. And by the way, he called them definitions. I think they're more statements about the thing. The first one was on punctuality. His definition of punctuality or statement about it is that punctuality is having a high regard for for other people regard for other people. That knocked my socks off. It, the actual definition, if you look it up in a dictionary, is you're on time. Being on time is being punctual. But he, he phrased it in a way that made you think, what's your motivation? What's your heart doing in this thing in regard to appointments and whether you're on time? Meetings. So I'll tell it to you one more time. This is a freebie. has nothing to do with the message. Punctuality what did I say it was? Punctuality is having a high regard for other people's time. Okay. So the second one that I really liked was on grace. And again, I would say this isn't actually a definition of grace. This is a statement about it. God's grace gives us the desire and the power to do his will. I really like that. And so I'm going to show you some verses where grace is used in regard to living the Christian life. Now that you are saved, how do you walk in newness of life? There's a number of things where God supplies grace to help you walk in newness of life. Now, there's eight of them that I'm going to list. There's more, but eight's what I'm listing for you. And I've got them in order as they appear in the New Testament. The first four are in First and Second Corinthians, so I'm going to actually read those verses. We're going to look at those. And then... Um, the last four I'm going to go just real quick over and leave it for you to, to go look them up and explore them. But the first one is 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul is talking about his ministry. He's just phrased the gospel that had been passed down to him. In this wonderful verse, he says in 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Bob has talked about, in 1 John, an Oreo verse where you got the black cookie and then the cream and then you got the black cookie. Here we have a, sort of an Oreo, except it's grace that's the two cookies. He, when he, the way he says it, the grace of God, by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. That's His grace changing Him and putting Him into service. Okay? Grace. 
And then he says, but I labored even more than all of them. Paul worked hard. That's the cream. Now, I'm not talking about what you like best, okay? You might not like work. So for you, you'd want to be the cookie. But that's the part in the middle. He worked hard. He labored more than all of them. He's referring to the other apostles, by the way, if you look at the context. But then he finishes by saying, but yet not I, but the grace of God. Sandwiched between his hard, his hard work is sandwiched between God's grace on both ends. So, God's grace enables us to work hard for the Lord over the long haul. Oh, yeah, i got to say this. So, this is over the long haul. Yesterday, we had a work day. You heard that mentioned earlier. The plan was to cut down one tree. It was a fairly big one, a dead tree. I brought a chainsaw. I cut the thing down, and we had a bunch of helper, a bunch of people here to help. So I didn't want them to be idle. I started cutting that thing up, and I zipped through it, cut it up, and then I went, I had cut it from about this height so it fell, and then I was cutting down here to, you know, to cut it where the stump was level with the ground. And I worked hard doing all that as quick as I could so other people could do stuff. This was before I found out that Brian was going to have us cut 25 other trees. But I was totally wiped out. I'm not in great shape the way I maybe was in my younger days. And I did all this work, and then I had to just stop and sit down and recover a little bit for that. And so then after that, when it became clear we were going to do 25 more trees, I was pacing myself after that. But that was a lot of hard work in a short time frame. Anybody can set their mind to it and work hard in a short time frame. But Paul is talking about laboring over the long haul of the rest of his life. And we see in a number of places, including our passage in 2 Corinthians 6, that he's enduring a lot of hardship. It's not easy what he's going through. Grace is what enables you to do it over the long haul, serving the Lord. Okay, second one, 2 Corinthians 1.12. God gives us the grace to conduct yourself in the world in a way that honors God. I think this is a, is a neat verse. 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom... But in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Paul's talking in that verse about how he as a believer conducts himself in the whole world amongst non-believers and believers. He then throws in the phrase, especially toward you, the Corinthians who have become believers. But he's talking about God's grace is what helps him live in a Christ-honoring way amongst the world. Um. Grace in giving, this comes after our current passage in chapter 9. I'm just going to read the two verses I have here, but the the actual context, which is about giving, starts in verse 6 and goes through verse 15. Verse verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, he's not talking to the rich who maybe can spare to be generous. He's talking to everybody who's a believer. God's grace is what enables you to give. In verse 14, he says, While they also, talking about the recipients of the gift, by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. In the context, they're not yearning for you and praying for you. And there's another verse in here about thanksgiving because of what you've done. They're not doing that because of the grace of God that led you to become a believer. 
They're doing that because of the grace of God that operated in, if I put myself in Paul's shoes, you Corinthians, as you give this gift. So it's the grace of God helps you to give generously. And by the way, I didn't cherry pick these things. I came up with eight things and I'm giving them to you in the order they are in the New Testament. So it's not like I'm picking on, trying to pick on anybody if, you know, you don't give generously. But that's a principle from Scripture. It's the grace of God that enables us to give generously. The fourth one I'm going to go into here by reading the verse is the grace to live with difficulties in a God-honoring way, Christ-honoring way. And here I'm in 2 Corinthians 12. This is the passage when Paul has talked about the thorn in the side, asking for God three times to take it away. So that would be in the category of a difficulty that he doesn't want to be putting up with, right? He wants it to go away. He doesn't want to keep having this thorn in the side. Verse 9 says, And he, God, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So we have the grace of God is what helps us to live with difficulties in a Christ-honoring way. There are other ways to live with difficulties. I'm going to touch on that in a minute. Um, So here are the other four. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4 have verses about grace to use spiritual gifts that God gives you. Those are, it's in the notes, uh, the sermon notes, so you can look those up later. Um, so, Brian, I was going to blow through this, but because of some of your comments. Uh, Colossians 3.16, it's grace that God gives us in singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You can go look that up. I, until I did this preparation this week, this one had never occurred to me. But I think biblically, it's the grace of God operating in you, the believer, that causes you to want to sing, to want to praise Him in song. And by the way, the context of that verse is about exhorting and encouraging one another as we sing together. So that's the grace of God. So this is something to think about if you're someone who doesn't like to sing. It's not your thing. Again... It may not be your, the question is, is it not your thing across the board? Or are there lots of secular songs you like to sing, you got to get into? If so, there's, there's something else going on. But let's say you just don't like to sing, period, no matter what it is. You came to Christ not liking to sing. Well, the good news is you're saved even if you don't change in that area. But the even better news is that the God who loves you and puts His Holy Spirit in you and produces fruit of joy and peace and love and a number of other things, He can give you the grace to make a joyful noise, to sing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you have a habit of not singing um, when we're together or in other Christian settings, I leave that for you to chew on. But Brian, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that helped helped you get up here, be bold enough to come up and lead us in singing. Um, Grace to live for Christ and glorify Him. This is a really good verse. I highly recommend you go read this later. Have a quiet time in that this week. 2 Thess 1, 11 and 12. And then grace to teach truth to others and be a laborer for Christ. This is super rich. 2 Timothy 2, 1. It's not on the screen, but I did put it on the sermon notes. You need to read 1 through 7 in order to see what it is that Timothy needs the grace to do The first verse, 2 verse 1, is where grace is mentioned. It says, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. 
Why? Why do I need that grace? You've got to read uh, 2 through 7 to see that. Okay, so <laughs> I'm spending the whole message on verse 1. So um, we set out, this church set out, as before I was even here, to teach through all of the Word of God in seven years. Steve, how long have we been teaching through the Word of God in seven years? Close to seven. I was guessing it was like nine. Are you sure it's close to seven? I think it was about like nine years we've been teaching through the Word of God in seven years. Um, so I'm going to move forward fairly quiet, fairly quickly. We're going to move off of verse one. So what would it mean? He says, he says he's pleading with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What would it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Well, the answer is in verse two. It has to do with salvation. Failing to be saved. I've already given some examples of how people can profess faith in Christ but not actually be saved. I, I, want, you to notice, I want you to notice here, um, if we look at verse 2, that he quotes from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Isaiah 49. And he says, For he, God, says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. And then Paul, leaving the Old Testament, says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He's in his ambassador for Christ mode here, pleading with you, be reconciled to Christ. But, but notice the Old Testament verse, God says, I listen to you. If you hear the good news and never ask for salvation, never cry out to him, would there be a response? He says, on the day of salvation, I helped you. If you're not looking for salvation, does it come? Over in Romans 10, we have several good verses there that talk about uh, confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that he raised Jesus from the dead. Um, verse, I think it's 11 in chapter 10, says, um, says, all who call upon him will not be disappointed. The idea of calling out. Verse 13 says, all who call upon the name of, of Christ will, will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a response of calling out to God when we hear that there's good news that we can be reconciled to Him. People can hear that good news and they can just choose not to call out. Even, even more uh, bluntly, they can actually choose to reject. I don't want that. And so that would be the grace of God in vain for that person because you don't, don't accept it, don't want it. Okay, so moving on. Verse 3, he says, um, giving no cause in anything. He says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. For the rest of this chapter, and I, I'm not going to finish this chapter, but for the rest of this chapter... I think this is the overarching verse that everything falls under. Uh, this is the umbrella verse. Giving no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. I want you to see the tie. All of that, chapter 5, last half of it, leading up to being an ambassador for Christ. He's representing Christ to other people. He now wants to not have the ministry be blamed. In the, in the Greek, this word that's translated blamed means to blame, to find fault. If you if you got the ESV, it says here, don't want to find fault with our ministry. Uh, it also means to mock, to mock at. 
And, and there's another word that's used in uh, the New American Standard saying, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. I think this best captures the meaning of that Greek word where it's wrapping all three of them in there. If I do something that makes some non-believer blame the ministry, well, that's discrediting it. If I do something that makes some non-believer find fault with the ministry, that's discrediting it. If I make, do something that a non-believer starts mocking the ministry, I'm discrediting it. And, and so everything that comes after this, in my view, has to do with things that discredit the ministry and trying to avoid it. So um, how does Paul avoid the ministry being discredited? He gives three categories. I'm going to leave this for you to look at. In our... Uh, question and sharing time after the message. If there's something you get really excited about in these verses, share it then. But I see it falling in three categories. Number one is hard things that we don't want to experience. You read those two verses. Those are things you do not want to go through. Um, Number two is Christ-like character and God's powerful weapons. Verse 6 and 7 talk about things that God supplies through the Holy Spirit working in you. And he talks about things that you will see if you go look at Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. So that's the second category. And then the third category are contrasts, where he he gives a collection of opposites. And his point there is that he's in a given circumstance where people would react a certain way, but he reacts a different way because of Christ in him. He doesn't want the ministry to be discredited, and he's living his life in a way to try to minimize that. Okay? Um, So I have a quick list of things that discredit our ministry. And by the way, if you're thinking, I don't have the ministry that Paul had. Well, Ephesians 4 says that we all have a ministry. And so we need to care about this. Ephesians 4, verse verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints. Saints are holy ones. Everyone who has become a believer in Christ is a saint. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We all are involved in ministry of some sort in the name of Christ. And we all should care about the ministry of serving Christ. So it all ties up under the umbrella of being an ambassador for Christ, a a messenger for him to those around us. We need to care about what discredits the ministry. So I have a few things I want to show up. I want to throw, show up here. And the first one is handling hard things very poorly. The action thought or application is to think of fruit juice. You know this verse: nine fruit. The fruit of the spirit has nine things: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. It ends in self-control or discipline, depending on your version. Perseverance. Um, If you have a sponge and you soak it in water and sit it on the countertop and then you do that, what happens? Splashes, right? You compress it quickly, water shoots out. You have been filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When hard things in life squeeze you, what should come out? Fruit juice, right? The people around you ought to be splattered with the fruit of the Holy Spirit if it's If you're full of that, think of that sponge analogy. I want to be that way. You should want to be that way. And this is something supernatural that 
I can't pull off and you can't pull off. The Holy Spirit creates that fruit in us. And if we're walking in newness of life, trying to live for the Lord, we become full of that fruit. And when something hard happens in life, you have a health issue. Do people see you become just as despondent as every non-believer that has that health issue? Or do they see a joy that belies the circumstances? How can you be so joyful? Do they see supernatural or do they see natural? You um, have someone at work uh, treat you badly. Let's say you keep, you keep getting overlooked for promotions or something. Do you get bitter? Do you get angry? Do you talk to your coworkers in a negative way about the management? If so, that's natural, right? Fruit juice might be kindness. That's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? Kindness might come out of you. Love, if they saw that, where you're still not bashing the management. Well, that's supernatural. They may, not, they may think, well, you're just clueless. But my point is that fruit juice is what should come out of. The people that get splattered, it's up to them to make of it what they will. Okay? But um, what's another example? Uh, your spouse does something that really upsets you. Do you give her what for, up and down? And I, in spite of my testimony, I have, I have not reacted in the control of the Holy Spirit sometimes with my wife. Do you get angry and yell at your spouse? This is for wives too, not just husbands. Husbands do things that make wives upset. Do you get angry and yell at your spouse? Or do you go into some uh, manipulative mode? You know, maybe it's not yelling, but some way to manipulate them, some way to get back at them. Um, well, that's natural. People aren't going to see God with that kind of response. But if it's fruit juice, pick a fruit. Read the, memorize that verse. Pick one. Goodness is one of them in my translation. If goodness comes out of you in the face of someone treating you horribly, that's supernatural. The person who's splattered may just wipe that off. What is that stuff? And go on. But they may also take a moment and step back and what, what is different about him? I'm not like that. And they might be convicted. And they might want whatever it is you have. In the movie uh, Fireproof, the husband becomes a believer partway through. I'm, most of you have probably seen it. And he starts doing genuinely, from his heart, things to show kindness and love to his wife who's in the process of divorcing him. And there's a wonderful scene Keep it together here. There's a wonderful scene when she's sick in bed and she has discovered the book he's been reading and what he's doing. She asks, it's a 40-day thing, and she asks him what day you're on, and he says 46. (laughs) She says, there's only 40. And he says, well, he says, I can't keep doing it. But then she says to him, I can't remember if it's in bed. I don't think it's in bed. It's when she meets him in the fire station and has put her wedding ring back on. She says to him, I want what you have, I think. It might have been something's happened to you. I want what happened to you to happen to me. Anyway, she sees it and she wants that, okay? That's what the fruit juice is all about and I'm just out of time. So sin, sin discredits our ministry. Uh, the action thought or application to think of is to be holy. Romans twelve nine says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. My paraphrase for this, and I've heard others say it, is love what God loves, hate what God hates. This verse here, Romans 12, 9, sums that up. Um, How we handle money. I was going to talk about this some, but being generous. 
Proverbs 22, 9, 1 Timothy 6, 18. They're good verses to look at. There are times where we try to get the best deal and we're not really thinking about how we might bless somebody else. There are times, I think, where we need to not necessarily get the very best deal we can get because we could bless the other person. Christians, this is another area on tipping on Sundays, our legend, there's a, just the, the non-believing waiters and waitresses look at us as hypocrites because we give these, we, we come in on a Sunday afternoon and for a lot of Christians, that's the only time they go out to eat. They want it to be a special time. And so they're, you know, critical of whatever might go wrong and then give a low tip because they didn't get good service. But there's another way you can look at it that would be supernatural, which is how can I bless this person who's waiting on me even if, they mess up some. Or even if they have a lousy attitude today, how can I bless them? Wouldn't it be supernatural? That's not, you've got to admit it, that's not how you normally think. We could think that way and be generous. Um, uh, other things that discredit our ministry, unequally yoked. I, I don't have time to really go into this, but it's a farm analogy. If you have a strong ox and a weak ox, the strong one pulls the weak one. Uh, it makes a mess of the field. The uh, person trying to drive the ox uh, has to work extra hard trying to keep them straight, a lot of frustration. I think that this, we, we think of this, number one, this verse 14, in the context of marriage, don't marry a non-believer, wonderful application of it. But in the context, it's a broader thing. Anything that gets you yoked with non-believers where you can't get out. So in our secular world, you may have a job where the, the, the person running the business is not a believer. But you could change jobs if it got, you know, super bad. You're not stuck completely, you know. So, and if you think that you're in a situation where you're stuck and you have no way out, there's ways for the grace of God to flow through you in that situation. But the warning here is don't be unequally yoked. Believers with non-believers in things where I think where it's things... Do I have this up here where... So we're a temple of the living God. That's a key verse. You're the temple of the living God. Don't be associated with things that bring uh, uncleanness into your life or that cause and it tracks back up to the top thing, discredits your ministry. God wants us to be fully his with no compromise. And so we should not go into decisions where we have the option to not go forward with it and become tightly bound That'd be a good way to phrase it. Tightly bound with unbelievers where over the long haul, we're going to have trouble with our beliefs standing out compared to their beliefs. That's a lot of what this comes down to. Are you getting into a situation where over time, your beliefs are not going to stand out as different? Because you're in this thing where you're going to keep going along with the decisions that they want to make, driven by a different God. A false god. Okay. Uh, I didn't mean to do that, but that's fine. (laughs) Uh, Let me ask you a few questions, and I'm done. First off, is the grace of God operating in your life? Do you reflect on that? Uh, If not, I suggest you go to 2 Timothy 2.1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and meditate on that some. We need the grace of God to live a Christ-honoring life. And there's all kinds of ways that flows out in our lives. Number two, do you ever think about how your actions could reflect badly 
on the cause of Christ. I stick that in instead of ministry. In the cause of Christ. Because for the sake of the team you're on, you should want to guard the team's reputation. Right? So if you don't ever think about that, you need to think about that some. And then the last thing is, is there anything where you need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word given to us that we might read it and be changed. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who comes into our life and establishes your ownership of us and then empowers us to live godly lives. And I thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that you put us together in, our wives and husbands, our children, and our church. Father, help us to love one another as you have loved us. And let your grace be mighty in our lives that we would honor and glorify you in how we live. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.